Keep your Bibles open to that passage. We're going to be going through that, uh, starting in verses 1 through 9, as Pastor Cruz read, but also continuing on in the story. When you come to a story like this, you don't have necessarily three nice, neat points as you're telling a narrative. In that light, I like to think of this as having many different applications, many different things that we can learn from it, maybe not fitting all into one nice, neat point. But in general, if you want to know what this is about, we're talking about Saul's salvation, Paul's salvation. And from that, I think we can learn a lot of different things. And it's kind of neat that some of the songs that Pastor chose this morning and also even his scripture passage tie into that very well, of course, because we're in the book of Romans. I'm not going to try and continue his series. We'll let him do that next week, Lord willing, when he comes back to continue that series. But we'll be in this just for today. So in Acts chapter 9, I picked a passage that is something very familiar to a lot of you, I'm sure. If you're familiar with who Saul was or the Apostle Paul is, this is a famous story. And there's many conversions in the book of Acts, over 5,000, you could say, really, in, in the book of Acts. But here, we're talking about one that is focused on perhaps the most, one of the most significant uh, conversion stories in the entire book that we could dedicate our time to. So we've already read verses 1 through 9, um, and so I'm going to make some observations about that, and then we're going to keep moving on through the story as we think about where God takes Saul from verse 1, breathing out murderous threats, um, to Jesus Christ confronting him and just knocking him down off his horse and blinding him, and then where he goes from there. So let's just follow through that story and get right into it. Here we have described for us two things from what Pastor Cruz just read. Saul's zeal against Christians, right, as we think about what he was and what God's going to turn him into. Uh, And then we also see his encounter with the Lord, okay? We see his original state and then his encounter with the Lord. This passage begins with a very unique way. It starts with the word meanwhile. So in order to understand this word, we must quickly remind ourselves of the verses before course, me just preaching here this morning, we're jumping into the middle of the story, right? So I got to catch you up a little bit. Um, Acts chapter 8, we obviously can't read the whole book of Acts up to this point, but in that chapter, um, there are two stories described. Number one, the conversion of a person named Simon the sorcerer, and number two, the salvation of this Ethiopian eunuch, and if you're not familiar with those, I'd invite you to, you know, read over those at some point later today just to get caught up with that. But in that first story, there's this man who used to perform all kinds of miracles through the power of Satan, who was then converted to Christ, and then with him, many other men and women from Samaria. Then in the second story, Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, Philip, uh, was divinely led by God to intercept this Ethiopian eunuch riding in his chariot home from Jerusalem. And he's reading Isaiah the prophet as this all happens. Philip explains Jesus Christ to him. This man believes and was baptized, and he goes home rejoicing. But lest we think everything is just going really well for the church at this time, that's where Acts chapter 9 comes in and says, meanwhile. In other words, even while all these encouraging things are happening, Saul continues to pose an even greater threat to the survival of the church. So there's lots of positive things happening in the background, but now we come to this main problem, this individual named Saul. And it says that he went from place to place, threatening believers and throwing them into prison. So we would have already seen 
Again, back in Acts chapter 8, that Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. It says, quote, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And now, in chapter 9, it would seem that Saul is getting even more momentum. He goes to the high priest in Jerusalem. He asks for written permission to capture more Christians from the surrounding town of Damascus as well. And verse 1 says that Paul was breathing out murderous threats against Christians. So here it would seem that Paul was just threatening murder, okay? But later in Acts, we find out that he wasn't just threatening, but he was participating in it as well. Now, we don't know any specific instances of where Paul actually killed anybody, okay? We, we think of Paul as a murderer, but, but it just says he breathed out these, these threats. And, you know, of course we know that he was deeply enough involved in this whole plot that he was essentially guilty of this. He is the person in charge of arresting these people with the sole intent of putting them to death. So, um, as we listen to these verses in Acts chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. He says later on, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And then also, again, you don't have to turn there, but Acts 27, uh, 26, he says, and this is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of them in prison so that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So you can see that Paul was persecuting Christians to a high degree. And what we see here in Acts chapter 9 is that Saul has gotten to the place where he's trying to expand his reach even more. He started out persecuting them in Jerusalem, and now that has resulted in Christians scattering all over the place. But that's not enough for him. He wants to totally wipe them out. You don't understand what kind of man this is. He is bent on achieving this goal to the fullest, to completely eliminate all the followers of the way or uh, following Jesus Christ. And so to do that, he's willing to chase them into other foreign countries in order to bring them back to Jerusalem to imprison or kill them. So, listen to these words, Acts chapter 26, verse 11, spoken by Paul later on. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. This is what's happening in Acts chapter 9, in our current passage. Okay, so can you imagine somebody so zealous that they're willing to cross boundaries, political boundaries, to catch somebody and bring them back to have them killed. That's the type of man he is at this point. So we see the height of his zeal. And here he gets permission to go to Damascus, which would have been the capital of the neighboring territory of Syria at this time. There was a large congregation of Jews living there, and the high priest's letter seemed to give Saul the authority of extradition so that he could arrest Christian Jews, take them back to Jerusalem for punishment. And that journey to Damascus was about 150 miles away, which just shows how far he was willing to go to oppose Christianity. That would be like going from Lebanon to New York City, okay? However Paul got there, by foot, donkey, camel, Uber, whatever he had, right? Taxi, uh, he probably didn't have either of those, okay? So he, he probably, it would have taken a long time, right? He's really, really into this. So now Paul would have done some major damage 
already in Jerusalem. He wants to go even further. And it would have gotten worse had God not stepped in at this particular point in time and intervened along the way. So verse 3 in chapter 9 says that Paul was almost at his destination. In other words, after he had probably traveled at least 120 miles or more and was close to Damascus, God intercepted and stopped him. The passage does not tell us, but later on in Acts 26, when Paul is giving his testimony, he says that it was about noon when all this happened. Okay? So I just think it's interesting, if you just pause right there, to think that God doesn't even stop him before he even takes his journey. Like, he stops him 120 miles out of the 150. Just, it just goes to show how futile all this is. You know, I think maybe God's making a point of just how much time you're wasting, Paul, to get so far, and from our perspective, or maybe if you were a Jewish Christian living at that time and knew all that was going on, maybe nobody knew he was coming. But let's say you did, and you think he's getting closer and closer and closer, and then, bam, God just inter- intervenes and stops the whole thing when all almost seemed lost. Paul was close and God stopped him. So it's about noon when all this happened, and a light brighter than the sun suddenly shone around Paul and his companions. Okay, noon, that's like, it's meant to say it's as bright as it can be already. Sun's at the height of its location in the sky, bright shining down, and yet something even brighter than that comes along. It was so overwhelming that all of them immediately fell to their knees, and Paul heard a voice speaking to him. This voice said in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, again, as we put together these different testimonies that Paul tells in Acts, we can piece together a lot of details. Chapter 26, verse 15 adds, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, is what Jesus says to him at this point. Now, even though he saw this light, and all of them saw this light, it's clear from the text that God was not seeking to save anyone here but Saul. For in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, it says that men heard the sound but didn't see anybody. And further, Acts chapter 22, verse 9, again, putting together all of Paul's accounts of the same event together, it says that these men heard the sound but, quote, they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to Saul. Now, Paul says later in Acts chapter 26 that the voice of Jesus was in Aramaic. He says that in chapter 26, verse 14. So there's two possibilities here. Number one could be that the people with him didn't understand Aramaic, or it could just mean that God allowed it to be such that only Paul understood what was being said, and he blocked that out from the ears of the other people. I tend to prefer the second option of that. It seems to be miraculous to begin with. And uh, it's certainly within the power of God to do that. So here he says something very significant. He says, Saul, Saul. He calls his name twice. And if you read any commentaries about this particular book or or anything else, people make a lot about how his name is mentioned twice. There's only so many people in the Bible that that happens to. You think of Abraham in Genesis 22, 11. God says, Abraham, Abraham. Or Genesis 46, 2. God says, Jacob, Jacob. Or Exodus 3, 3. Moses, Moses. He doesn't seem to do this to just anybody. But these are all very important people in Israelite history. So even if somehow we didn't know what Saul would do later in life, this should cause us to see that he is predestined for something great, even if we only had that to go on. Now, when Saul was confronted by this blinding vision, he responded by saying, Who are you, Lord? Acts 9, verse 5. And you can imagine the surprise Saul must have felt when he heard the voice answered back, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. 
I am Jesus. This person that he, he assumed to be fake, right? He assumed that if, if anything, it was just a, a dead guy who presumed to be a prophet but wasn't who all these Christians claimed him to be. And now he's being blinded on this road to Damascus. As he hears this voice, he asks, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, this very person he didn't believe in. Here, Jesus, who he had disregarded as a dangerous myth, was real. And Jesus puts him in his place. Now, it's interesting here, because God doesn't always confront us in the same way. Here, God is very direct with Paul and just kind of knocking him off his horse and saying, this is who I am, this is what you're going to do. As I looked at this passage, there was, there was a, a sermon clip that came to mind. I like listening to Matt Chandler. He's a, the senior pastor of the Village Church in Texas. And uh, he talks about this very fact of the different ways God converts people. So it's about a three or four minute clip. Um, Tom, if you'd play that now. And those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. Okay. How does he call? That's all over the map. Like some people he engages through the intellect. Um, here's, here's one. Have you seen the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia? Have you seen that? Uh, okay, um, that, that was originally written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. His friends called him Jack. I don't know, all right? He's like, my name is Matt Chandler. My friends call me Chuck. I don't know. I don't get why they called him Jack. But C.S. Lewis was the, well, in 1925, became um, a teacher of medieval literature at Oxford. He would later move to Cambridge. Just brilliant mind. His mom died of cancer when he was nine. He fought in World War I, was wounded, saw atrocities there, and became a staunch, ferocious atheist. All right? Now, as he would teach medieval lit, here's the thing that infuriated him. All his favorite authors in regards to medieval literature were Christians. So it drove him crazy. Drove him crazy. He also had a dear friend a friend that was close to him, also a brilliant intellect, all right, public intellect, named J.R. Tolkien. Have you heard of him? <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. About 15 hours of futility, if you want to watch all those. And so, um, Tolkien and Lewis would go to the pub, and they would drink pints and smoke pipes and argue for hours. Like Tolkien would just argue and argue and argue with Lewis because Lewis was tormented by the Bible, hated the Bible. Here's why. He wanted to take this book and he goes, uh, he wanted to go, it's just myth. It's just myth is all it is. But his problem was it doesn't, he knew enough about medieval literature to know it's not myth because of the details in the text and the historical assignments given. Like if you read Beowulf, there are no details in Beowulf. But in the text, in our scripture, there are things like they threw the net off the left side of the boat early in the morning. There are histori there's historical data given. Leaders that were actually in power when the Bible says they were in power. There's, there were all, so he knew it wasn't myth, but he wanted it to be myth. It drove him crazy. And so finally, they go on this long walk and they walk all night long. And Tolkien just goes, here's your problem, Lewis. This is a myth that's true. And for whatever reason, that line, this is a myth that's true, just blew Lewis up. It just infuriated him. And so a couple of days later, he gets on his brother's motorcycle and goes to the zoo. 
And according to him, he got on that bike and wasn't a believer. When he arrived at the zoo in London, he was the most reluctant convert in London. <laughs> How'd God come after him? Through his intellect. But then there are other times that God doesn't come through the intellect at all. Like the apostle Paul. The apostles on his horse. Saul is on his horse, headed to Damascus to kill Christians. Jesus himself is like, bam! No! I'm done with this. You're following me. All right? And then he even stands over him for a second. I'll show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And then what happens? Paul serves him faithfully. Jesus didn't show up and go, Paul, open up your Torah. Let me discuss with you, both in regards to religion and philosophy, why my resurrection, which I'm obviously resurrected, check it, is the most logical course of events to make sense of the mess that you see around you in the world. He doesn't do it, does he? God doesn't save everybody the same way. Maybe you can relate to that. Here, Paul is knocked off his horse, just as it was said, and God confronts him and just says, no, you're wrong. But maybe that, didn't ha maybe that happened that way for you. Maybe it was a different way for you. Maybe God was patient with you and, and convinced you over time. Maybe it was not through the intellect. Maybe it wasn't just through a direct encounter. Maybe it was through the example of somebody else, somebody that you knew for a long time who was a Christian, and they lived a different life and made you curious to know what they believed. God works in a host of different ways. So with that attitude in mind, it makes sense that here, in this particular case, Jesus chooses to use this particular method. He doesn't mess around, but he confronts Paul, and then he commands him to enter the city of Damascus where he will be told what he should do. So Saul gets up off the ground, now blind, and the men with him have to lead him by hand into the city. Okay, this person who was going with this purpose in mind is now being commanded by Jesus to do his will. So isn't it amazing how God is able to change things entirely in a second? That's another thing that just comes to mind as we think about this passage, how he was almost there. He was 120 miles in, and things just looked like they were at their worst. And then in a moment, bam, God changes everything. You, know, you might get discouraged when you watch the news today. You see the way our country is going or just the way even maybe your own neighbors or your own heart. You know, just the amount of evil that's in the world when you just hear different news stories and different things around us and inside of us. And it's good to remember, no, the book of Revelation is still true. God can turn anything around in a heartbeat. Even think about the end of the book of Revelation. One of the last things that happens is that there's a rebellion against God's people, and it says there's this army that surrounds the camp of God, and it looks like all is lost, and then, bam, fire descends out of heaven, and God ends the battle. Just like that. that how, that's how God works. It should bring us great comfort when we see what God does here in Saul's life. So how ironic is it now that Saul is being led to Damascus by others, just as he must have led believers to their trial and their death in Jerusalem. Saul is being led now to Damascus where he had planned to lead others out. The letter in Saul's hand no longer has any authority. 
Now he's following orders from Jesus. And the fact that he has been brought low is illustrated by the fact that he does not even eat or drink for three days. He is so stunned by what has happened, he is unable to function. And even that three days uh, bit is, is in, interesting. I'll let commentaries and things like that make sense of that. But three days, that's, that's an interesting period of time. There are many Christians around him in Damascus for him to catch, but he can't even get up the strength or will to eat. He is that disturbed. He is that changed. He is that knocked off his, his course uh, of, of, of action that he was originally going to, to take. Can you imagine some of the things Paul must have been thinking during this time? He had been well-trained in Ju- Judaism his entire life. He knew the Old Testament well, and he thought he was serving God by persecuting the church. Now he's come face-to-face with the one he opposed, the one he thought to be dead, and now was clearly alive. Saul's worldview must have been turned upside down. He had been not fighting for God, but fighting against God all along. He had been killing the ones who pleased God the most. Can you imagine being Saul and having just to wrestle with these thoughts? In some ways, it's God's mercy that he's had this chance just to sit down and reflect on everything. It's so much to take in, I imagine. And this just shows God's mercy, I think, because we marvel at what God did in order to convert him, how God just showed up out of nowhere, blinded him, and changed his course. But we could also say what God didn't do. He didn't strike him dead. You know, that, that's something God could have done for sure. And God certainly did in the past for far lesser crimes, if you think of some of the Old Testament examples. He wasn't swallowed up in the ground like Korah in his rebellion, right? And think about how, depending on what your testimony is, okay? In my particular case, I, I was saved at age 18. So there are a lot of wasted years behind me, <laughs> years that I should have been following Christ but wasn't. But yet we see God's mercy in that all that Paul had done, everybody that he had persecuted led off to their deaths, God doesn't strike him dead. God shows mercy in just blinding him and giving him a chance to think and to change course and now be used for something greater. But you know, I I ask you to consider, even if you are saved this morning and you've already come to that place of accepting Jesus Christ uh, into your life, Think about the kinds of things that you spend your time on, right? We don't want to be, none of us want to be wasting our lives. Here it's a very clear case where Paul has been wasting everything, going completely against God for so many years, right? But I don't want it to take to the end of your life for us to all be on our deathbed to realize, wait a second, what have I been spending my time on, right? Here Paul was brought to a clear vision of what all that looked like and the things that he had wasted time on and the things that were really true now. I just encourage you, no matter where you are, to stop and think, what, what have you been spending your life on? In light of eternity, in light of who is on the throne, um, where do we spend our time? So this brings us to the second half of our text, Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Let me read that. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So here we learn that Saul is staying at this home, a man named Judas, and while he's there, Saul's praying. He's trying to make sense, like we said, of everything that's happening. Meanwhile, God, God caused this believer named Ananias to be the first one to speak to Saul after this miraculous vision. And he instructs Ananias specifically how to find this particular house, what he's supposed to do so that he can see again. That's God's command to Ananias. Now, when he hears, he has this reaction that I think maybe you and I would have if we were put in the same spot. He says, Lord, isn't this the same man who has been trying to kill everybody, right? In other words, if I go to meet this man, I am doomed as well. But I love how God doesn't mess around here. His one-word sentence is go, but he continues on, of course. He says more than that, but his first word in response is just go. <laughs> he doesn't even argue with him about it. He, he says, go, this, this man is going to be my chosen instrument. He will carry this name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the people of Israel. But there was more. The one who had brought so much suffering to the saints would himself suffer greatly for the name of Jesus. Well, that was apparently enough to convince Ananias. He left to go to the house of Judas where he found Saul just as the Lord indicated. And when he entered, he did exactly as God said. He placed his hands on Saul, told him that he had been sent to restore sight to, to him and to bestow the Spirit on him. And, and we see the scales come down off of his eyes. He believes in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. His heart's changed. It says he's immediately baptized. And then he ate and regained his strength. Almost just as quickly as Saul had been immobilized and brought low, God immediately restored and renewed Saul as soon as he believed. I think that's amazing. You know, what so crippled him and caused him not to be able to eat when that grace was shown upon him and, and the scales fell from his eyes when he was baptized, when he truly understood and believed. It's like that guilt, that, that tension was taken away. He was forgiven and he knew it. And, and that's just as amazing to me as God suddenly stopping Paul in his tracks on the way to Damascus. How he can take a broken soul and grant forgiveness just by declaration and renew us and give us strength once again. This is a perfect illustration of what happens spiritually when we become saved. What better way could you illustrate the words, was blind but now I see, when you think of this story? In his sin and rebellion, Saul really was blind, you could say. He really was helpless. But now God made him a new person once he accepted this truth of Jesus Christ. And with renewed strength, the new purpose, that's what God does with us when we believe as well. So with this text in mind, what do we learn from all of this? Well, first of all, we see that this was a dramatic and unique conversion. Let's face it, we've all heard many powerful testimonies of people 
who, who have had amazing things happen to them where their lives were total, you know, just at the end of their rope, and, and then God came and rescued them and totally turned their lives around. Again, God saves us in all different ways, so maybe that's your story, or maybe you just grew up in a Christian home and accepted Christ at age five, or maybe you were somewhere in between. Um, but in any case, we can see things that are common to every believer, no matter if your story is like Saul's or not. Um, consider, for example, the obvious fact that Saul was not seeking God, but was actively opposing him. And we learn here that salvation is not the result of lost men seeking God, but of God seeking lost men. Listen to these verses, and I'm sure some of them are familiar to you. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in John 15, 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Or then in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness, not even one. I don't know if you realize this, if you're somebody who loves theology or that's not your thing, but this is, this is the very doctrines of Calvinism. And it's a glorious thing. You know, if anybody knows anything about those kinds of words, usually it gets a bad rap as if it's some sort of cold, unfeeling kind of theology. But it's not. It's right there plain in Scripture when we think of what total depravity means. Uh, Calvinism is often described in five letters, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which all stand for different things. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Wonderful truths found in Scripture. And we see it all here at work in Saul that there are none that seeks after God, shows that our condition uh, for, uh, that our election really is unconditional. It's not based on anything that we have done or any of us seeking after God, just as Saul was not seeking after God. He was going in the exact opposite way. Yet God rescued him, turned him around, and changed his heart. He was totally depraved, totally sinful, totally unable to save himself, not able to seek after God on his own. And that's true of us all. We can see a similarity in Saul's story in our own as well. But those truths that we talk about, about how we're totally unable to save ourselves, also bring us great hope. Because at the end of that, if we acknowledge that it's only by God's grace that we are saved, His irresistible grace, then it's only by God's power that we're held in His hand and that we can have security in the future. When we talk about this doctrine of perseverance of the saints, we just sang together not too many minutes ago, He will hold me fast, right? And that's true. I, I think we really do believe that, that it's not up to us that if we have a bad day, that suddenly we've lost God's favor and now we're out of that salvation and we have to somehow earn it back. No, it's God who saved us from the beginning, God who rescued us when we weren't seeking Him, and he's the one who's going to hold us fast, who's going to keep us to the end. So in that sense, I think Paul's story should bring us great hope and comfort. Saul's conversion is also a strong illustration that religion alone can't save a person. You think about Saul, he was as Jewish as one could get, and yet he was not saved. He was as zealous for his religion as one could get, and that could not save him. 
He would later write in Philippians 3, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anybody else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, because I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as we've just read, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And that leads us even into an even greater truth, that for as much guilt as Paul could have felt, for everything that he was doing in the wrong way, God rescued him. And there's nobody, nobody at all, we learn from this story, that is too far gone, too sinful, too lost for God to save. If God could save a Paul or a Saul, then God can certainly save anybody that might come to your mind, any relative, any friend, any person that you might know. And we need to be reminded of that time and time again because it can be easy when we see somebody who we maybe have tried to witness to just turn us away time and time again or somebody who seems to be living a life that's totally different, totally far on the other extreme that we think maybe there's no chance at all. We need to be reminded of this truth that yes, God can save whoever he desires to save and he can do it in an instant. Just like how he knocked Paul off of his horse and in a moment changed his worldview. Ultimately, this is not a story about Paul. It's not a sermon about us. It's a sermon about God's power. God's power is omnipotent. There's nothing like it. It's unstoppable. It's irresistible. I want to bring us, just in conclusion, to Pastor's passage that he originally would have had us read today. Turn in your Bibles to that. And I'm not going to take Pastor's message away. I'm sure he'll want to preach on this next week. But I, I just thought it was interesting that um, the story of Paul ties in uh, pretty well, I think, with Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 that you see printed in your bullets in there. If we go to Romans chapter 6, we're brought even more into a state of hope. As you think about everything that Paul lived for in the past, now he was given a new purpose. It wasn't just declaring what he had done to be wrong, which it certainly was, but it was also filling him with new life and a new sense of this is what it means to serve my king, and this is what he would live for the rest of his life. What shall we say then, it says in chapter 6? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not all know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's what happened to Paul. He was brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We also, we know that Christ, who being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let us not sin, therefore, uh, let sin not, therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So Paul's life was not only just, you know, taken out, knocked out from where it was going, but given new purpose. And from here on, not only does he leave that life behind, but now he begins to serve his Savior like this. He is one who has died to sin and one who has been given this new task to reach the lost, to no longer live for that sinful life that he had once known, but to live for Christ. May it be so with us. May it be so with us as we think about the life of Paul. May we be encouraged to know that God, above everything, is powerful, is strong, is sovereign, is the one who began our salvation, no matter what our story looks like, whether he confronted us in a moment or whether it happened gradually over time in a more gentle way, God was the one that drew your heart. God was the one that turned your life around from whatever direction you were going prior to that time, and God's the one that gives you purpose to serve him. It's amazing when you think of everything that Paul is going to do from this point. When it says he's going to witness to the Gentiles and to kings, the end of the book of Acts is him ending up in Rome, waiting trial to stand before Caesar, the most powerful person in the universe, in the, in, not in the universe, but in, in the world at that time, while Paul is alive. He's going to stand before the most powerful ruler there is. And certainly he didn't know all of that when he started. But we're reminded, too, that God has something great in store for us as well. Maybe we won't stand before rulers and kings, but God has a purpose for you to fulfill. If only we had eyes to see what it is that God intends to do with our lives as well. So may we serve him with our whole being as we remember our salvation, the way God turned us around and put us on a path to following him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study this familiar portion of Scripture, I'm sure one that many of us have known, I desire, Lord, that you would impress upon us these truths once again of how powerful you are, how salvation ultimately comes from your hand, how even in our own case, no matter how we were saved, Lord, you were the one who brought us up from death and have set us in the right direction and have given us new purpose. And so, God, like Saul, may we leave behind that old life. May we follow you with our whole being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.